Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor David Gerdes, who is Professor of Physics at the University of Michigan. His research addresses basic questions about the large-scale structure and evolution of the universe. Welcome, David. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Our discussion today, I know that you, have, you do a lot of work in, um, in cosmology uh, and related topics, uh, but our, uh, our topic of discussion today is more uh, closer to home. Um, and I would categorize this sort of the revenge of uh, revenge of Pluto, David. <laughs> uh, uh, so Pluto was demoted in, uh, I believe, in two thousand six, right? That's right. And uh, there has been this idea um, of a, a, a planet X, a, a ninth planet that we haven't found yet. So you have a paper in twenty sixteen entitled evidence for a distant giant planet in the solar system, in which you say recent analyses have shown that distant orbits within the scattered disk population of the Kuiper Belt exhibit an unexpected clustering in their respective arguments of uh, prehelion, uh, perhelion. Uh, while several hypotheses have been put forward to explain this alignment, to date a theoretical model that can successfully account for the observations remains elusive. So, so Kuiper Belt is this um, th- this large amount of debris out there, right? Is it beyond um, um, beyond Neptune uh, that Kuiper Belt debris actually? That, that's right. And Gil, I want to correct one important thing: the the 2016 paper on evidence for a distant giant planet was not written by me. It was written by uh, two scientists at Caltech named Konstantin Batygin and Mike Brown. Um, And that is the paper that set off a a great amount of excitement in the uh, astronomical community about the possible existence of a ninth planet. Um, Mike Brown is is famous for having discovered a number of dwarf planets out beyond Neptune, such as Pluto-sized object um, Eris, which is what led to the debate you alluded to about what is a planet anyway, and eventually resulted (laughs) in Pluto being, you know, as you put it, 
as you put it, demoted. Um, but I just wanted to clear up that that this wasn't my paper. It was it was a paper that that I and many other people read, and it and it actually helped change my scientific focus from the cosmology that I was busy doing at the time to uh, this problem of the outer solar system. So the Kuiper Belt, like you said, is a region, it's sometimes called the third zone of the solar system. It's a vast region, you know, everything beyond Neptune that yeah. we like to think of as a, as a sort of archaeological site that encodes history of the very early days of the solar system. These are, these are for the most part, pristine pieces of, of primordial material that never made it into something big enough to be a planet. Yeah. So they, they are, they are preserving, you know, these preserved relics of, of the, the stuff out of which the rest of the solar system was built. So, so to get the scale of this, uh, David, so the astronomical unit uh, that you use, that's the distance between the sun and the earth, right? Right. And, and so how far are we, uh, are we thinking about when we think about the Kuiper Belt? Yeah, it's important to keep a sense of scale in mind to appreciate how, you know, how truly vast the, the Kuiper Belt region is. Earth is at one astronomical unit or one AU from the sun. So we can think of that as like a standard ruler in the solar system. Um, Jupiter is at about five AU. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is sort of between, you know, three or so, three, four AU. Neptune is at 30 AU. And that yeah. you can think of as sort of the outer boundary of the, the planetary region of the solar system, the region with the, the terrestrial planets and then the, the gas and ice giants. Neptune's at 30 AU. And loosely speaking, the Kuiper belt starts where the Neptune of orbit, where the orbit of Neptune ends. So a typical Kuiper Belt object might orbit at a distance of 35 to 50 AU from the sun. And they have a variety of different orbits. They tend to be not as much in the same plane as all the major planets are. The major yeah. planets orbits are all inclined within a few degrees of each other. But Kuiper Belt objects can have inclinations that range from close to zero, like, like Earth and the other planets, to um, you know, 30, 40, even 50 mm -hmm. degrees. There's even a handful of objects with, with retrograde orbits in the Kuiper Belt. So it's a, you can think of it as kind of a donut-shaped ring, yeah. uh, roughly between 35 and, and 50 AU. But there are other objects out there that have even longer period orbits. So Pluto takes 250 or so years to make one orbit of the sun. Pluto's at a mean distance of 39 AU. Um, but as we have discovered more of these objects and learned more about their orbits, we've discovered classes of objects that have orbits that take many hundreds or even many thousands of years to make one complete yeah. orbit around the sun. And that's what that 2016 paper was about, is those most extreme objects. Extreme objects. And so their orbits are highly elliptical. This, uh, these um, uh, probes that we sent, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, did they go through the Kuiper Belt? They did. They went through the Kuiper Belt and uh, they transmitted data about the environment out there. In fact, I think one of the Voyager spacecraft is, if not both, are still 
in some sort of radio contact, even though they are now uh, beyond a, 100 AU, I think. Um, so Voyager passed through the Kuiper Belt. The Pioneer spacecraft before them uh, also passed through the Kuiper Belt. And currently, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, which flew by Pluto in 2016 and sent back that famous picture of Pluto with the heart, yeah. is flying through the Kuiper Belt. My group is also involved with finding new targets in the Kuiper Belt for New Horizons. Yeah, so, so when we look at this sort of in a, from above, it seems very dense, but obviously uh, the chance of a, a probe like Voyager uh, hitting one of these objects is still pretty remote, right? It's it's vanishingly remote, although it's something you, you always worry about because you have no control over it. <laughs> Um, yeah. For that matter, it's it's the same with the with the asteroid belt, uh, the 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 main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter that we are more familiar with. We send spacecraft through the asteroid belt all the time, on the way to Jupiter, yeah. on the way to Saturn, on the way to the outer solar system. And if you you know have in mind a picture of an asteroid belt like from a science fiction movie where suddenly they they you know warp speed and end up in an asteroid belt and there's boulders everywhere and it's like having to navigate uh, rush hour traffic going the wrong way. Um, in reality, it is it is 99.9999 something percent empty space out there. So the chances of actually colliding with one of these things are, are very small. Oh, yeah. And so, so going back to this paper uh, from the researchers of, from Caltech in 2016, uh, they say that we demonstrate that the perihelion positions and orbital planes of the objects are tightly conf confined and that such a clustering has only a probability of, they say, 0.007% to be due to chance that's requiring a dynamical origin. Perihelion is, is, is the closest position to the sun, right? Right. So it might be helpful to back up for a second and just talk yeah. about what we, what we mean when we say an object has a certain orbit. So orbits are roughly speaking, uh, elliptical orbits. And I say roughly speaking simply because we don't live in a two-body system with the sun and one thing going around it. There's giant planets that perturb orbits and so on. But these orbits are approximately elliptical. And so when you talk about an ellipse, you can talk about several parameters, the, the, the length of the long axis of the ellipse or, or half that length, that's called the semi-major axis. So roughly the size of the, of the ellipse. It's yeah. eccentricity, how round or, or elongated is it? And you can talk about its inclination with respect to the main plane of the solar system. So those three parameters describe its, its size and shape and, um, and inclination. Then you can, yeah. there are two other angular parameters that, that describe sort of the, the pitch and the yaw, you know, which, which, in which direction is it inclined? Where does it cross the main plane of the solar system? So that's five parameters. And then finally, the sixth parameter is where in the orbit is the actual object right now? Where is that the dot following that elliptical track? So it takes six parameters to describe that orbit. Um, Earth's is very roughly circular with a semi-major axis of 1 AU. The Kuiper Belt objects that we look at have semi-major axes of 35 to 50 typically, but sometimes much larger. And like you said, the perihelion is the um, distance of closest approach, in this case, to the sun. So, yeah. um, and the, the uh, 
argument of perihelion is essentially the the angular position at which the the perihelion happens. You know, wh which way is the orbit pointing? So, to understand why that's important, we need to think a little bit about what these orbits should you know should look like. Many Kuiper Belt objects have long, skinny elliptical orbits because of the way that that uh, they, they formed and got to their present positions. And for most Kuiper Belt objects, for the vast majority of Kuiper Belt objects, the direction in which those ellipses point is pretty random. They they mm -hmm. point, you know, to all, all points around the clock. The 2016 paper by Batigan and Brown address the issue of the most, what we call extreme trans-Neptunian or extreme Kuiper Belt objects, objects that have periods of thousands of years, which corresponds to semi-major axes of, of 250 AU, let's say, or more. So these objects really take, you know, a tremendous amount of time to go around the sun. And a very small number of those objects are known. When they wrote their paper in 2016, only six such objects that, that fit that definition of, of semi-major axis greater than 250 were known. And so it's a small statistic sample, but Batigan and Brown and a few others before them, like uh, Chad Trujillo and Scott Shepard, had noticed that these, these ellipses didn't seem to be randomly oriented, unlike the rest of the Kuiper Belt. These elliptical orbits tended to point in a particular direction and lie in a particular plane. So yeah. that's weird. And you start looking at a pattern like that and wondering if that's not just a strange statistical fluctuation, which can happen with six objects, then what could cause that? And, you know, one option is it really is just statistics and you'll find more of them and the effect is going to go away. They calculated that probability. That was the 0.007%. Um, you know, yeah. the details of that calculation can be debated, but it, it was looking at that point like, um, you know, statistically kind of unlikely. Then um, you could say, okay, so what else could it be? And uh, one possibility is that there is some dynamical effect that is pulling those objects or causing those objects to align in that way. What could it be? That was what was behind their proposal that there could be a, um, a ninth planet, you know, a, a real planet, like a five or 10 Earth mass planet far beyond Neptune at an orbit of like 600 AU. Remember, Neptune's at 30. So, you know, we're talking many multiples of Neptune's distance away from the sun. And yeah. uh, Batygin and, and Brown showed through a number of, of careful calculations with pencil and paper and also simulations on a computer that over the lifetime of the solar system, an object like that, a, a five to 10 Earth mass planet in an orbit six or 800 AU from the sun and with a certain inclination and so on, could bring about the alignment of these most distant objects and keep it sort of preserved and stable over, over long periods. They wouldn't sort of randomize themselves over time. So that was really interesting. And, you know, astronomers get really excited when someone says there might be a new planet out there in our solar system, because that would be, that would be incredible. You know, we would all um, 
turn every telescope in the world to it, and we would want to design missions to go there and study it. And um, it would be it would be a tremendously exciting thing for for everyone in 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 both the scientific community and in the public. I mean, it's been, after all, depending on how you count, it's been somewhere between 170 and and uh, 90 or so years since anyone's found a planet. You know, if you're still in the Pluto camp, then then uh, closer to 90 years. So, um, so that'd be really incredible. Now, at in 2016, I had we were just a couple of years into doing a project called the Dark Energy Survey that my research group and I were involved in, along with with collaborators at many other institutions. The Dark Energy Survey uses a four meter telescope down in Chile, the Blanco Telescope at Cerro Tololo, together with a new wide field camera that our group that our, our big collaboration built. And we were in the process of making a map of about one eighth of the sky. We were using our telescope to take pictures, you know, how many nights a year were we? I think about a hundred nights a year for, uh, for five years, we were on the sky systematically making a map um, in many different colors of of one eighth of the sky. And the purpose of that survey and the reason I got involved with it was to do cosmology. It was to study the large scale structure and evolution of the of the universe and why the universe is accelerating in its expansion and so on. That's a whole separate, really interesting topic that I know you've discussed before on, on your program. So yeah. um, I was thinking, before this paper came out, I was thinking, you know, what else can we do with this incredible data set? We've got, what we've got is a, is a time dependent map, you know, because we're, we're taking these exposures at different times over a period of years of, of a significant swath of the sky. And what can we do with this data besides, you know, add all these images together to make one very deep picture of an eighth of the sky and, and do cosmology with it? Well, when we were planning the survey, we thought about other science we could do besides cosmology. And we talked about things like studying the structure of the Milky Way and studying star formation. And, and no one thought about the solar system for some reason, and uh, including me. And, uh, but, yeah. but after the first year of the survey, around 2014 or 2015, um, I was um, looking for something to do with our new data. And... I wanted yeah. to get my hands dirty. I wanted to kind of find a project that would be educational for me and, and kind of fun. I had a couple of summer students coming, a couple of undergraduates who I, I needed to find something for them to do. And, and so yeah. I thought, you know, what can we do that, that um, is a little off the beaten track? It'll be fun. It'll be a good project for students. They can make it their own and they won't get, um, they won't be in competition with more experienced people on the, on the survey what can we do? And so that's when I thought about the, the solar system and maybe we could, you know, we're after all taking these pictures by looking through our solar system and through our galaxy to, to the galaxies beyond. But what about the stuff that wanders into view through our own solar system? Can we find objects in our images that were there in that location on this one night and were never there again? You know, th these are moving objects that are potentially uh, objects in our, well, anything moving that fast would be an object in our solar system. And so... What's, what's the size of the window we are talking about there? The, the size of the window? Yeah. The, the data that, yeah, so 
you know, how, how uh, what, what sort of the area that you're looking at uh, so in that data? So the, the survey was covering a region of the sky of about 5,000 square degrees in area. So what does that mean? It's, it's, it's about an eighth of the visible sky. Um, the moon is, is a, the full moon is a half a degree in diameter. So if you imagine yeah. um, uh, uh, an area of the sky that could be, that could be tiled by about 20,000 full moons, you would, you would get um, the area of our survey. It's a tremendous amount of data, um, not only in terms of, of um, physical size of the data set, you know, it takes a lot of disk space and a lot of computing power to, to analyze it, but it is also yeah. incredibly rich. There are billions of detected objects in these images. A four meter telescope sees really, really deep. So, and, mm -hmm. and when you go to the sky and you take a picture of someplace and then you go back a month or a year or five years later and take a picture of that same place, virtually everything you see is the same. The, the, the stars are in the same place you left them five years ago. Same with the galaxies. Um, although the universe is expanding and accelerating, there is not visible motion of any galaxies, you know, on the time scale of, of, of a human lifetime. So that part of the sky is, is pretty static. Sometimes things change. Sometimes a supernova goes off in a galaxy, a star explodes. Sometimes um, there are variable stars in our galaxy whose brightness changes. And we can see that when you go back at a different time. But for the most part, everything stays in the same place and behaves pretty much the same from day to day and week to week and, and year to year. But solar system objects move around. I mean, the simplest example is, is the moon moves around in our sky all the time, every month from, from east to west and, and so on. The planets go through periods where they're visible in the morning or the evening. And, um, and it's the same with, with objects in the, in the Kuiper belt, but they move through the sky much more slowly than closer objects because they're just, uh, they're further away from us, they're further away from the sun, they're orbiting in a weaker gravitational field. So for all those reasons, Kuiper belt objects move slowly enough that they, they go a little way, but not so far that, that they're um, out of the picture the next time we go back to, the, to that area of the sky. They, they, they move within a few degrees. Yeah. So we started asking the question, what can we do with our data to find the objects that are transients that were just there that one time, compile a list of those transients, and then figure out which of those things were the same thing that was in, in different places at different times and connect those dots into an orbit. And then from that orbit, you yeah. know, me measure those six parameters of the semi-major axis and so on. So, so that was my thought process. And that was all I really knew about the solar system. At that point, I didn't even know how to fit an orbit. I had to, you know, look it up and learn it. Um, but that first summer with, with uh, me and the two undergraduate students, we ended up discovering six new solar system objects in our data set, which was really exciting for, for me and, and thrilling for the students. How many students can yeah. say, you know, they found a new piece of the solar system? So did they get to, did they get to uh, name them? They didn't get to name them and naming them is a, is a separate thing we could, we could talk about. They, they get, they are designated when we report them to the, to the minor planet center, which is the, the kind of repository of all this information. They get 
a designation yeah. that is a year followed by some letters and numbers. It's kind of like a license plate number. And um, it, <laughs> right. it takes many years for objects to be able to be named. And then we have to name them after creation deities in the Kuiper belt. So if you know of any good creation deities, um, I'd be I'd be happy to consider using them for these objects when we can name some of them. It is uh, it's an amazing thing, David, that you know what data can do for you. I would imagine uh, that the data that you wanted to sort of extract from that data set, the information you want to extract, would have been noise uh, from the original gold perspective, right? If the dark dark energy. Oh, absolutely! Survey. It's you know it's it's like the old saying: one man's junk is another man's treasure. Um, these. <laughs> I mean, our collaboration, the Dark Energy Survey, is a bunch of cosmologists. And cosmologists think that the Milky Way galaxy is this annoying foreground object that's in the way. And <laughs> so if that's annoying, you know, think how annoying the solar system is. Asteroids are passing through these images and they, they you know, mess up uh, the, the pictures of the galaxies we were trying to take. But, but that's, you know, what, what I got interested in scientifically. So, so um so we were starting to build up some tools and, and starting to find more and more of these objects. In fact, one of the very first objects we found was an object whose license plate I have memorized, 2013 RF-98. And 2013 RF-98 has a semi-major axis of about 335 AU, so 10 times Neptune's, um, 10 times Neptune's average distance from the sun. It takes, you know, 10,000 yeah. or so years to, to complete one orbit of the sun. And, um, but we see it, um, when we see it, it, it's pretty close to, close to the, close to Neptune. I guess the, the, the semi uh, major axis dimension largely driven by the, by the fact that it's going to go too far on the other side, right? That actually will allow, trans-Neptunian objects like 2013 RF-98 yeah. that, that we found in our data as this incredibly faint smudge, you know, as, as faint as a, as a candle at about the distance of the moon. I mean, these things are truly faint and it's truly remarkable that, that our instruments can detect them. But because they are so distant and so faint, these objects, particularly that are on elliptical orbits, are much more likely to be detected near perihelion. In fact, like 2013 RF-98 and, and other extreme trans-Neptunian objects rapidly get fainter as they move away from perihelion. In fact, their brightness drops off like uh, their distance from the sun to the fourth power. So it, it, they, they get faint really fast. When they get twice as far away from the sun, they are uh, 16 times fainter than they were before. So they get faint really fast. So in fact, they are they're unobservably faint by even the most powerful telescopes over 95 plus percent of their orbit typically. So we discover them at a very special time in their orbit. So that gets us back to the, the, the 2016 paper, which, which uh, examined the orbits of the six such objects that were then known, one of them being our object 2013 RF-98. And, um, and they said, you know, these ellipses all point in the same direction and they're roughly coplanar. That's weird. So if yeah. you discount statistics, what you are left with in the opinion of, of Batigan and Brown is there must be a dynamical explanation. There must be something, yeah. some massive 
perturber out there somewhere that is a, that is producing this alignment, but it has to be a very distant perturber because the rest of the Kuiper belt doesn't look this way. So it must be something very far away that only affects the most distant objects. Now, there was one thing that they didn't think about in that 2016 paper that was another possible explanation, which is that these objects appear clustered because of a bias in the way that we detect them because of selection effects. <laughs> that it's that yeah. in fact there is a, a uniform distribution of these things just like there is of everything else. But the way that we detect these things with our telescopes and our observatories produces the appearance of clustering. So you might wonder, you know, how does how does that happen? And it has to do with the fact that these objects can only be detected over a very small portion of their orbital arc when they're near perihelion. So that's one example of a selection bias. You know, we never find extreme transneptunian objects at aphelion, at their, at their furthest distance from the sun. So for every one yeah. that we find, there are probably another hundred that will eventually perhaps become bright enough to be seen, but right now they're completely invisible. So that's an example of kind of... There are tens of thousands, right, uh, David? Uh, do we have an estimate of how many sort of Kuiper Belt objects there are, are there? A couple of thousand Kuiper Belt objects that have been observed and had their orbits pretty well measured. So you can go to the Minor Planet Center's website and, and you know look them up, and you'll you'll find about two or three thousand such objects. Um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. the The Kuiper Belt is probably much more populous than the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. There's about a million objects known in the, in the asteroid belt. <clears throat> and the reason that the numbers are smaller for the Kuiper belt is simply that um, we can only see the largest Kuiper belt objects from Earth. An, an object the size of, of a typical asteroid a couple kilometers across or, or even just hundreds of meters can't be seen at Kuiper belt distances. So the objects that we're discovering in the Kuiper belt, we and other people are discovering in the Kuiper belt are typically 50 to 100 kilometers in diameter or larger. Um, and we don't yeah. even measure directly the diameters. We, we measure the, their reflected light and um, make some estimate of their surface reflectivity. And that's, that's how we infer a size, but, but they appear in all our telescopes as just as points. So, and yeah, so the, the hypothesis they advanced, um, based on that small data set, there appears to be sort of an anomaly. They are, they are, um, they're sort of aligned that is unlikely to happen from a statistical perspective, but, but the number of data points you have mm -hmm. is really small, right? Uh, right. That so, was so you're always, that's why doing statistics with small numbers of objects is, is, is tricky, you know? <laughs> Your attention was drawn yeah. to this small sample in the first place because there was something slightly anomalous about it. And so um, uh, it, it's not exactly a, a, an independent quantity that you can just do, do statistics on. So, so you know, there's, there are debates about how you calculate the significance of an effect that, that you are calculating in the first place because it, it looks anomalous. No one's talking about clustering and in eccentricity or something like that. So, so it, it's, it's already a slightly odd thing, but let's take it as a, as a, um, you know, take it as a given that, that this clustering is in fact yeah. statistically unlikely, which, which as more of these objects have been discovered, it, it, it is statistically unlikely. You know, you would not get this arrangement 
randomly from statistics. So you need something else to explain why these extreme Kuiper Belt objects appear to be clustered. Planet Nine is one explanation, yeah. and it's a really exciting explanation. And and the the calculations that they did to demonstrate that Planet Nine could produce this effect are 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 um, complicated and and quite beautiful. Yeah, I you know I, I have been rooting uh, for uh, the existence of Planet uh, Planet Nine, David. Uh, it seems so exciting. Uh, it's a large one, uh, perhaps five to ten um, Earth masses, as you as you mentioned, and eight hundred, six hundred to eight hundred AU. Uh, at six hundred to eight hundred AU, um, it is sort of weakly tethered to the to the sun. That's at right. That it's, point, the, right? It's, that's a that's a good observation, and it it is actually one of the um, somewhat problematic features of of supposing that there's a, a giant planet out there, which is, you know, how do you, how do you make such a thing? Um, we believe yeah. that, that the planets in our solar system formed out of a, out of a circumstellar disk, a disk of gas and debris that, that surrounded the, the thing that became the sun and that these, this gas and debris gradually accreted and, and formed, um, form planet, sized objects. So the planets are all here inside of 30 AU because that's where the stuff was, you know, and, and um, hmm. there is not five or 10 earth masses worth of stuff in one convenient close by lump 600 AU away. So if you want there to be a planet nine out there at say 600 AU, you need to figure out how to how to get something that big from somewhere else out to there. So there could it be could it be captured but it could so be that's one possibility. Solar? So it could be um, it could be we know that that uh, well we've we've seen very recently that objects from other solar systems you know interstellar objects have passed through our solar system. There was Oumuamua a couple of years ago and and um, um, yeah. Comet Borisov uh, uh, a couple of years after that, so um, so we know that that things get ejected from systems around other stars, and maybe that could happen to a, a planet-sized thing too. We also know that most stars, including our sun, are born in giant gas clouds along with other stars. So the birth environment of the solar system was a more crowded place than we live in now. And we probably experienced fairly close flybys from other stars in the early days of the solar system. And so people like my colleague, Fred Adams at Michigan have done a lot of calculations about how objects like planets can be exchanged between systems in these flybys. And um, because Planet Nine's orbit is, is so kind of precarious, you know, out there in this very weakly bound state, the, the number of the number of collisions that would result in a planet being actually captured into a roughly circular orbit rather than just uh, ejected mm -hmm. entirely or, or um, um, being failed, failing to be captured at all. It, the number of scenarios that results in the stable capture of a planet at that distance from the sun is really small. So it, it, it is a theory that's been advanced not only for planet nine, but for um, 
uh, strange, extreme Kuiper Belt objects like uh, like the dwarf planet Sedna, whose perihelion distance is around 80 AU. You know, how does that happen? Um, it could happen that it was formed in close in our solar system, along with the other major planets, and then through some series of, of um, close interactions and, and some chaos got uh, ejected from the solar system and like into the outer darkness. And then subsequently its orbit got circularized by, by maybe another passing star. So, you know, you need a sort of sequence of, of, um, of rather low probability occurrences to, to get the planet nine out there, but, but it, it could happen. And one of the reasons that we think it could happen is that uh, a planet like Sedna, a dwarf planet like Sedna exists. It's got a perihelion of 80 and there's no simple way to make that either. So all the same, all the same mechanisms apply. So it could happen. Um, but that is, that is, uh, you know, another, another thing that the planet nine proponents um, need to explain, you know, it's, it's one thing to wave a magic wand and say a planet like this would, explain clustering, but um, actually getting five to 10 earth mass objects out at that distance is, is, a, is a rather hard dynamical problem. So, um, so we'll take a quick break, David. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about your recent paper uh, on the subject. Very good. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Um, David, we were talking about this idea of Planet Nine uh, possibly a large uh, planet, five to ten uh, Earth masses way out there, 600 to 800 um, astronomical units. Uh, based on some observations of objects in the Kuiper belt, their inclination, their alignment, and so on, um, the, the statistical probability of that happening appeared low, and uh, that, that is why the hypothesis was advanced in 2015-2016 timeframe. And um, you have um, looked at this, you have done some work in this area, um, and you have a recent paper uh, on the subject, no evidence for orbital clustering in the extreme trans-Neptunian objects. These are the Kuiper Belt objects. To tell you the truth, David, I have been hoping for Planet Nine to be sort of uh, maybe a black hole, a small black hole, you know? We'll never <laughs> find it. And if it existed, it would have solved our energy problems. Not likely. Mm. Well, it's it's that was a really cool idea too. And and um, you know, it, <laughs> that's one of the great things about about the Planet Nine hypothesis. I, I think in general is it, it is a really great illustration of the scientific process at work. You know, someone notices something weird and proposes an explanation for that, and that kicks off a whole area of activity within the community from people who theorize, you know, how could we make a big planet out there to what if it's a black hole to how can we find more of these uh, 
like tracer Kuiper belt objects that could tell us more about it indirectly to how could we predict its position more accurately to, you know, what if it's not there at all and there's some other explanation. So, you know, I think of, I think of the 2016 paper by Batigan and Brown and the, the paper suggesting it's a black hole that, that you mentioned and, and, um, and our, our recent paper on, on the lack of evidence for clustering as, as you know, part of a conversation. And I think our paper is, is, um, is fairly convincing, but it's a conversation that will go on and will not be resolved until there is, until there is um, you know, more data and even more of these objects to dig into. And and so so you mentioned a little bit of this. So the, the basic idea of of the paper is that there is a selection bias, as you mentioned. These things are uh, difficult to see. We have to pick them up uh, when they are close to us. Uh, they have obviously long orbital times, and the observations that we make is sort of biased. And so. Um, so the data that we pick up uh, are, are is, is inherently biased, and so whatever we find in that data, uh, in terms of orientation, alignment, etc., uh, are not really that useful. Is that the idea? Well, it's not that they're not useful. It's just that you need to be very careful to account for the selection biases when you draw inferences from the from the data you have. Yeah. So. We mentioned earlier one form of selection bias, which is simply that there is a there is a brightness limit below which telescopes can't see these objects. So if you know all extreme trans-Neptunian objects were fainter than that, we would never even know about them. Hmm. So so that's one example. But there's there's some more subtle examples of selection bias. These telescopes, the the, the surveys that detect these objects are observing selected regions of the sky, so not the whole sky, and at certain times of the year. For example, many telescopes, like the one we use to do the dark energy survey and whose data I sort of hijacked to study the solar system, um, it, it's, it, it's in Chile, and the, the solar system, the, the, the ecliptic, the part of the solar system where the, the most stuff um, orbits, is is best positioned for viewing from Chile um, in the the latter part of the year. So so people are looking at certain regions of the sky at certain times of year with telescopes that um, have inherent limits to their detection efficiencies, and so you need to model that. And that was not done in the 2016 paper. And many people right away pointed out that that that's something you, you need to, to think about. The problem is that is the difficulty with quantifying it is that in order to do that, you need to know the discovery circumstances of each of those objects, which have been discovered by a you know, variety of means over a variety of years by different groups and different people. You need to know exactly when the telescope was pointing where, exactly how they were detecting and following up these objects. And that's not always readily available knowledge, especially for objects that have been discovered for a while, you know, a couple of decades ago. That, that information just wasn't really preserved in the literature. So what we decided to do in our recent work is to consider the, the subsample of extreme trans-Neptunian objects 
that have been discovered since the 2016 paper by Batigan and Brown. Consider an independent sample, and we will further restrict our attention to those objects that were discovered by surveys or, or observing projects whose selection functions we can work out because they've published the history of where their telescope was pointing and when, and they have published their strategies for tracking and discovering these objects. So there are three such surveys that we chose to model. Our own dark energy survey that we know like the back of our hand. Uh, there was a survey called the Outer Solar System's Origin Survey, or ASOS, that was a purpose-built solar system discovery survey. And then there was a survey uh, by a, a, a Chad Trujillo and, and Scott Shepard, who were some of the people who originally thought about an extra planet out there. They have, they have done a survey looking for the most distant objects. They, they discovered, um, Trujillo was one of the folks who discovered Sedna. Uh, Trujillo and Shepard discovered another object that has a perihelion beyond 80. So they're interested in the really distant objects. So, so you have these three surveys, the Dark Energy Survey, which is not a solar system survey at all. It's designed to do cosmology. Yeah. Uh, so it's got a strategy that was you know, invented for a whole different purpose. The ASO survey, which is a meticulously characterized survey designed to discover outer solar system objects. And then the survey of Trujillo and Shepard, which was a wide area survey designed to discover only the most distant objects. If it was like inside 50 AU, they didn't, didn't bother with it. It was like catch and release fishing. It's closer than 50 AU, throw it back. So these are three different surveys, three very different sets of scientific goals, three very different observing strategies. But between the three of them, they accounted for about 14 new trans-Neptunian objects, extreme trans-Neptunian objects that were not among the original six objects in Batygin and Brown's 2016 paper. So our, our idea was, you know, each individual survey has discovered, you know, three, four, five, six of these objects, which isn't a very big number, but 14, you know, 14 is more than twice as big as six. And so we've got this, this independent sample of more than twice as many objects from surveys whose selection functions we can model and understand. And if the clustering of those original six objects was a, a physical effect, then when we model the selection functions of these surveys and we have a data set that's more than twice as big, this clustering should become statistically even stronger. It should really leap out and it should like provably leap out because we can show that that selection bias doesn't isn't wouldn't be enough to account for it. So that was our goal. And, you know, honestly, we were hoping for uh, that. That's what we would find that this clustering was was um, um, not consistent with an ordinary population of uniformly distributed objects. So this analysis, which was led by uh, Kevin Napier at the University of Michigan, who is a graduate student of mine, um, an incredibly smart and, and hardworking guy. We, we modeled the selection functions of each of these surveys. What we basically did was we, was we, we made a simulated Kuiper belt. We made a simulated Kuiper belt full of, trend, of extreme trans-Neptunian objects whose ellipses were not clustered, that were pointed in every which random direction. And then we passed our simulated Kuiper belt objects 
through simulations of each of these surveys and, and asked which of these objects would have been detected by the Dark Energy Survey, by yeah. ASOS, by Trujillo and Shepard's survey. And we, we do this many, many times. And we like, you know, a million times in simulations because computers get really happy when you ask them to do the same thing a million times. And, um, uh, and we would look at, and so we would, we would get simulated detections of 14 objects and we would ask, you know, what do they look like? Do they look as clustered as the objects we see or are the objects that we see in the, you know, surveys we actually did, um, anomalously clustered compared to what our simulations would predict. And what we found and, and published in our paper is that in fact, the 14 objects that have been detected in real life by these surveys are, they look very typically like the 14 objects you would select from a simulated Kuiper belt of uniformly distributed objects simply because these surveys have the selection biases they do in terms of when and where they're looking and, and how they track these objects. So we computed a statistic. We computed several statistics. We wanted to slice the data in every possible way. We computed a statistic to characterize the consistency of, of the data with a uniform hypothesis. And we found um, that depending on exactly which objects you count and how you, you do the statistics, because remember, I told you statistics are a, a funny thing, but it's it's consistent at somewhere between the 17% and the 94% level with a uniform distribution. Now you might say, you know, 17%. That's kind of unlikely um, if it's if it's if it's that low, but um, you know that that's a one in five chance, and um, yeah. the the threshold for uh, claiming a significant a statistically significant discovery and in, in, in science is more like three to five standard deviations, which is, you know, 99 at the 1% level or less, 17% is, is nothing special. Um, so, yeah, so, so let me, let me see if I understand this, David. So, so the simulation you're talking about, you, you're doing a, a sort of a, a simulation of the Kuiper belt. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you have some limits on it in terms of inclination, say zero to 30 degrees or something. And if you have uh, a uniform population in the in the simulation, uh, and then you sort of randomly detect fourteen objects uh, from that simulation, you're, you're showing that 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 random detection of fourteen is not very different from uh, what you're finding in real. That, that's exactly right. We we find that the appearance of clustering is actually sculpted out of this uniform distribution by the selection functions of the surveys. Okay. And so, so that is sort of um, clear, I mean, well, uh, clear is difficult to say, but that is good evidence that of your initial hypothesis that it could be uh, purely due to selection um, and the observations we have made is, you know, just just a lucky observation, uh, and it doesn't necessarily imply they have to be aligned in any specific way. That, that that's right, and you know, I would have preferred to write a different paper, but um, but that's what the data told us, and so we were careful in our paper to say that that this analysis 
doesn't rule out Planet Nine. I mean, it's it's bad news for Planet Nine, but it doesn't rule it out. Um, you could imagine sneaky ways that that um, nature could have avoided our, our conclusions. For example, it might be that these extreme TNOs happen to be clustered right where the surveys are looking. <laughs> and, 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 you know, if that's the case, uh, which is essentially the, the argument uh, at this point that, that Batigan and, and Brown are making, you know, how fortunate that your surveys happen to look right where the, where the action is. Um, but, you know, in, in my opinion, that's, that's got the argument backwards. These, these objects were discovered by surveys looking there, giving the appearance of clustering, which was initially not taken into account. Um, and then Planet Nine was built around that hypothesis only to find out that, that clustering isn't necessarily a, a feature that you need to explain because it's, it's consistent with uniform. So is there, a, David, is there some observational advantage um, of picking, since they're aligned, would our telescopes uh, have some observation advantage to pick them up? Um, well, what we're saying is that is that um, you would find these things anywhere you looked. That that okay. there is a uniform distribution, and if you could um, do the observations from Chile in the spring instead of in the northern spring instead of in the northern fall, or if you could use a telescope that could see much fainter or could cover more of the sky, you would just find more and more of these things wherever wherever you looked. So, hmm. but but if you believe to the contrary that there is physical clustering and it happens to overlap with the selection function of current surveys, then you're making a prediction. And you're making a prediction that in future surveys, when we look at complementary areas of the sky, not currently reached by the surveys to date, that there will be a deficit of these objects compared to the number we see now. So that's a, that's a prediction that essentially the Planet Nine people um, would make. And fortunately, there will be an opportunity to test that prediction in coming years when the Vera Rubin Observatory comes online. The, the Rubin Observatory, uh, formerly known as the, the LSST, is a eight meter telescope in Chile with an enormous field of view that will be observing almost the entire visible sky every about three nights. And so over a period of 10 years, it will systematically cover much of the visible sky from the south to um, uh, really significant depth. And so it will, it will have a selection function too. You know, it doesn't remove bias. It still has a limit below which it can't detect anything. And it, um, it's not able to see parts of the sky that aren't visible from Chile but it will be a much more uniform selection function than the ones we have from, from current surveys. So if it sees evidence for clustering, you will believe at that point that the clustering is in fact a physical effect and not just a, an artifact of how surveys um, are, are constructed. But I think, you know, I'm a believer in, in Occam's razor and, and the simplest explanation being likely to be the, the, the true one. So what we, have established in our paper is that the known population of extreme transneptunian objects is consistent with coming from a uniform underlying population folded in with the selection function of surveys. So there is not a need to explain 
clustering because it is the, the, the data are consistent with there not being a, a true clustered population to start with. It is, uh, I have to say, David, it is really disappointing. I believe that every generation is entitled to a new planet. <laughs> and, uh, and ours seem to have lost one, you know, which is, which is even right. worse. Well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's all in how you look at it. I mean, every, <laughs> our generation has been blessed with thousands of planets. They happen to orbit other stars. Um, and and uh, no one could say that before 1998 or so. Uh, no one, the, the sun was the only planet, it was the only star we knew that, that had planets. And now we know that planetary systems are, are abundant. They're the norm and we can study them as, as, as populations. You know, the way we study Kuiper belt objects, we can study whole solar systems now. So it really is an amazing time. And it's, it's uh, kind of unfortunate that, that um, we haven't, been so lucky to find something new, but I, the Kuiper Belt is still a, a vast unexplored region, and and um, because these objects yeah. are so faint and so distant, they really push the limits of our ability to detect faint things. Um, we are working now on a project with the Dark Energy Camera, where we take um, so the same object, same camera we used to do the Dark Energy Survey where we're taking um, four hour exposure, four hour long exposure sequences of the same part of the sky and adding it together to be one big exposure to find the faintest Kuiper belt objects that are detectable from earth. And, um, you know, finding well over a hundred Kuiper belt objects in every single pointing of the camera, but it takes, it takes um, incredible computing processing power and, and real um, kind of clever, techniques to dig these these faint signals out. And I am sure that we will find interesting surprises. Um, and, you know, yeah. in, in the meantime, um, we think that the, the, and I hope we'll find more of these extreme objects as well. But in the meantime, it looks like, um, uh, if I can use the analogy of like a, a set of lost car keys, you know, and the, and the guy, <laughs> crawling on his hands and knees yeah. under the street light. And, and the passerby says, you know, what are you doing? And the guy says, I'm looking for my lost car keys. Well, why are you looking there? It's because I can see over here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so what we're saying is, is that um, the selection functions of surveys are like illuminated lampposts. And when you yeah. find the keys, it's, it's because that's where you can see, not because car keys happen to cluster under illuminated lampposts. Yeah, uh, I want to conclude with something that you actually found. So uh, the 20, you have a 2017 paper, Discovery and Physical Characterization of a Large Scattered Disk Object at 92 AU. Um, you say that we report the observation and physical characterization of a possible dwarf planet 2014. You call it DD. Typically, physicists don't come up with good names, but this sounds like a good one. <laughs> Dave. Uh, so that was that was that, a really fun uh, analysis to do and a, and a fun paper to write. So when we got our solar system object finding tools up and running in the dark energy survey, we started to find a lot of stuff. And what we found was uh, we found several hundred new Kuiper Belt objects, almost all of which were quite 
typical, ordinary Kuiper belt objects. You know, there are a few exceptions. 2013 RF-98 that I mentioned before is an extreme trans-Neptunian object. We found a few more of those. Um, but uh, uh, one day I was kind of pouring through the list of things that our, our code had found, and I'm looking at the, the current distance of the object from the sun as computed by our, our, our codes. And, uh, you know, it's 35 AU, 37 AU, 42 AU, 92 AU. Um, this, this, uh, more than twice as far as almost everything else we find. And so of course, I, you know, I had the natural reaction of every scientist, which is, this is probably wrong, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. uh, we, we, we looked at it. We found more observations. It was, it was clearly there, clearly there in the image, moving much more slowly than anything we'd ever seen before. And, um, so we got really excited because we, we quickly realized that at a distance of 92 AU, there was only one other solar system object at the time known to be more distant. That's the dwarf planet Eris, which at the time was at about 96 AU. Since then, there have been a few more distant objects discovered, but at the time, this was the second most distant. And furthermore, because these things decrease in brightness so rapidly with distance, like one over the fourth power of the distance, to be visible at all at 92 AU, this thing had to be pretty big. So we did some back of an envelope calculations and realized that this thing could be um, anywhere from 500 kilometers to over a thousand kilometers in, in diameter. Pluto is 3000 to set the scale. So um, you know, not a Pluto sized object, but, but you know, something as large as say the Great Lakes region or something. What is the, what is the classification parameters for a dwarf planet? So, so the dwarf planet concept is a category that was um, invented around 2006 by the International Astronomical Union to as a as a sort of catch-all bin for things that yeah. weren't quite planety enough to be planets but were too big to be just chunks of rock or asteroids so uh, and, and and this raises all kinds of you know hackles with with the Pluto people and you can debate every single one of these things because you know a dwarf planet is not a is not a physical concept it is a human classification um, but it is a dwarf planet is something that um, uh, uh, has not cleared its orbit and and orbits the sun is not an orbit around somebody else and um, uh, and the, the kind of important thing for for this discussion is that it needs to be big enough to be round due to its own self-gravity can't be a sort of irregular chunk of rock. Larger objects naturally compress themselves into spheres. So, um, and what diameter uh, approximately? What's the diameter that uh, that so makes it, it round? Depends on the composition of the object, but it's thought that most objects larger than about four hundred kilometers in size uh, should should be round. Um, now, yeah. we can't measure the size of Didi or of anything else out there directly. Um, we couldn't even measure it indirectly with our data in hand from the Dark Energy Survey because all we measure is reflected light. So we couldn't tell from that if what we were observing was uh, a lot of light reflected from a small shiny thing or from a big dark thing. All we could measure was the, the total light. So, um, so we needed a way to measure the size indirectly. And the way we did that was by measuring the, the heat it gives off. We knew its approximate temperature because we know its distance from the sun and it's in 
thermal equilibrium with the radiation out there. And an object at that temperature, you know, a, a, a big object will give off more heat than a, than a little object. How do you measure the heat of a rock 30 degrees above absolute zero that's 92 AU away? There's an amazing instrument also in Chile called ALMA, which is a, a array of, of uh, submillimeter radio dishes that can measure these extremely faint signals and actually detect the heat of this thing against the, the background of, of you know, the rest of the, of the universe. So because it's such an incredible instrument, time on ALMA is an incredibly precious commodity. And it's scheduled months, if not years, in advance through a very competitive and oversubscribed proposal process. So, but there's a little bit of time on instruments like this that are reserved for special opportunities that come up. It's called director's discretionary time. It refers to the godlike power that the director has to allocate time uh, for special projects. So we wrote a short proposal to the director of AMA that said we would really appreciate if we could get uh, about 12 hours worth of time on this billion dollar instrument to point it at this thing that we think might be big in the outer solar system. And, um, and a week went by and they said, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so and, and then like three weeks after that, we, we got our data. It was the, the students who were working with me that summer got a completely wrong idea of how the scientific method goes. You know, stuff usually takes years. <laughs> And, and this thing went from being a little, you know, dot on our laptop screen in about June to being an AMA target in September to being a paper, you know, the, the next winter. Um, so it was, it was great for the students because normally you don't, you don't get that experience. So from measuring the heat that it, it gave off, we were able to infer that it's about 635 kilometers in size and reflects about 13% of the light that it receives. So it's about like, Dry dirt reflects about thirteen percent of the light it receives. Yeah. So, so, so in conclusion, David, I, I want to ask you that the Kuiper Belt objects uh, have been implicated. You know, this mass uh, mass extinctions that we have seen on Earth, right? So these they, their um, orbits are highly elongated, and we can't really understand them. Um, you know, when they're very far away from us. Do you see uh, anything like that uh, as a possibility, something really big out there that could come at some point? I think they, they see, a, you know, sort of a duration of 60 million years uh, for mass extinctions. Is that so the, the object that hit the Earth and was responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs around 68 million years ago was not a Kuiper Belt object. It was, yeah. it was probably an object that was ejected from the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter and um, into an Earth crossing orbit. So that is a much more likely source of possible Earth impactors than the Kuiper Belt. 30, 40, 50 AU is a long way away. And yeah, I think the speculation was, um, you know, just as it comes closer, it perturbs a lot of the objects in, mm -hmm. the, in the Kuiper Belt. And when them, you know, it, it sends it back, back in our direction. Uh, is that possible? It's a very remote possibility. Fortunately, there are um, a couple of really big objects in between here in the Kuiper Belt called uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And and when when yeah. Kuiper Belt objects, Kuiper Belt objects do wander into the into the 
solar system. Those objects are called uh, are called centaurs. They're ob orbits that cross the orbits of the of the giant planets, and um, most of those objects get uh, suffer from from strong and repeated close encounters with with Jupiter or Saturn that result in them being captured into um, comet-like orbits that that are influenced by Jupiter. Many of them get ejected from the solar system. Some of them crash into the sun. So, you know, there is a remote possibility that what you might call a rogue centaur could, could accidentally strike the Earth, but it's a, it's a, it's a vanishingly remote possibility. However, the, the possibility that we get hit by a, uh, a more mundane, so to speak, near-Earth object that originated in the asteroid belt is, is a real possibility. We know that the Earth has been struck by fairly large things, even in historical times, like the object that hit uh, Tunguska in, in uh, the early 1900s and leveled, you know, many square miles worth of, of, yeah. of wilderness. So, so that's a real issue. And um, it is part of a, it, it's the motivation of a, of a huge effort by NASA and, and others around the world to track and classify and monitor um, everything potentially large enough to hit the earth and cause significant damage, which is anything above about 150 meters in size, not kilometers, meters, you know, yeah. a football field sized object. Um, many, many of those are known. Yeah. They're discovered all the time. Um, and uh, uh, so that's the probability of being hit. is still vanishingly small, but it could, uh, could happen. Do, do we have a good handle on the asteroid uh, belt objects that uh, it's unlikely that you'll get blind? We're discovering more and more of those things all the time. Um, and um, there's actually yeah. a congressional mandate to discover you know, everything under, under uh, over 150 meters. And um, the census of those objects is not complete. Many of those are also visible. I mean, Think of a 150 meter object. It's not very big, right? You can't see it when it's on the other side of the sun. So you can only discover these things when they are relatively well positioned to be observed by Earth. And so it's going to take some time to like scope out enough of, of, uh, of orbital space to detect all these things. NASA has some missions that are um, on the, the drawing board or actually in some advanced stages of planning. Um, one is, is called the Near-Earth Surveyor Mission that will detect lots of these things um, in infrared light from space. Another exciting thing that's, that's happening, I think, later this year is a mission called DART, which stands for a Double Asteroid Redirect Test. And they are going to fly this thing to a small asteroid that has an even smaller companion going around it, a little moon. And DART will send a kinetic impactor, basically a big chunk of stuff, and um, crash it into this little moon and observe how it modifies the orbit of, of that moon. Their goal is to perturb its orbit by, by you know, several, several um, tens of meters, which is, a, which is a technique that you could use to deflect a potential hazardous object to the Earth if you had long enough uh, advance notice to do it. So that's exciting. Um, uh, you know, there are, believe me, there are people who stay up nights um, worrying about, about defending the earth from, from near earth asteroids. And it's even got a name, it's called planetary defense. And there's uh, 
uh, a, a big community that, that is working on that. Yeah, I knew that the Japanese lab did an asteroid recently, yes. right? And um, and and scooped a sample of stuff and uh, and brought it back. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we worry about the environment, we <laughs> worry about politicians, uh, but but this is uh, certainly uh, way up there in terms of a threat, right? Uh, it's a systemic threat if if it happens. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, uh, so that's that. That's why it is important to understand and and classify these things. You know, Earth is hit every day by objects from space. If you just go out at night on a on a dark night and look up, you will you will see meteors crossing the sky. So we're hit all the time by things the size of, of a grain of sand, and and um, once in a while we are hit by something that causes an airburst. You might recall that there was this uh, one in Russia a few years ago that broke some windows and and did some damage, a big fireball. Um, maybe once in a century or more, you get a, a Tunguska-sized impact that, that uh, is, is uh, a hazard over, over many square miles. And you know, once every millions and millions and millions of years, you get a dinosaur-sized um, impactor. Um, you know, the, the good news is that the things that of the size that killed the dinosaurs, which is probably, I wanna say 10 kilometers in size, um, those uh, those have all been found, and the good news is we are not in immediate danger of being uh, mass extincted. Um, but there is a much yeah. more, you know, kind of present threat of um, of smaller scale impacts that could do some real damage, you know, if they if they happen to hit near a populated area. So so that's the focus of of current searches. Right. Right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been oh, great. It's been a David. pleasure. Thanks Gil. so much for spending time with me. Bye. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com